HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome cocktail expert Robert Simonson. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Robert about the new golden age in drinks, his new book, Modern Classic Cocktails, and we'll hear Robert's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Julia came into her own as an authority on cooking at the height of the 1960s cocktail scene. She and her husband, Paul, usually had an evening cocktail to wind down, and cocktails were a signature component of their entertaining game. However, it was Paul, not Julia, who was the cocktail connoisseur. He left the cooking to Julia, for sure, but he was in charge of the drinks. More than that, Paul invented his own cocktail recipes, including their house drink, the reverse martini, more vermouth than gin. One of his more elaborate special occasion drinks, the Rumbrosia, which Paul invented in 1948, is a mixture of dark rum, vermouth, Cointreau, lime juice, jasmine tea, and a variety of bitters. Someone who's even more steeped in cocktail culture is Robert Simonson. A transplanted New Yorker, originally from Wisconsin, who previously wrote about theater, Robert writes about cocktails, spirits, bars, and bartenders for the New York Times. As an author, his books include A Proper Drink, The Old Fashioned, Three Ingredient Cocktails, The Martini Cocktail, and Mezcal and Tequila Cocktails. In addition, his work has appeared in publications ranging from Food and Wine to GQ, Esquire, Imbibe, and Punch, where he's a contributing editor. He's been nominated for many spirited awards, multiple IACP, and James Beard Award nominations. You can find him on Substack with his newsletter, The Mix with Robert Simonson. Robert joins us today to tell us how a new cocktail ends up enduring and about his new book, Modern Classic Cocktails, 60 plus stories and recipes from the new golden age in drinks. Welcome to the podcast, Robert. Hello, great to be here. We're delighted to have you. So I want to go way back to the beginning of time, <laughs> and then we'll rapidly come back to the forward. But I think that there's something inherently like old-fashioned about cocktails. Like I remember growing up as a kid in like the 70s in Kansas City where, you know, it was 
the height of sophistication and people are having cocktails. My parents didn't really. And it just, but it also, from that perception, just seemed something old-fashioned and eternal. But I was realizing, particularly coming back to, to your latest book, that in the historic span of alcoholic drinks, which goes back very far, I thought it would be helpful to start with, can you kind of describe or how do you characterize even how modern of invention are cocktails? Well, there are two ways to look at that. I mean, you're right in the context of uh, all of history, of world history, human history, um, cocktails are a relatively modern invention. But when you think about the history of the United States, um, it's very old. It really goes back to the late 1700s, you know, so it almost goes back to the dawn of the country. Um, prior to that, I mean, the closest thing would be the punches that were drunk in England. But here in America, we are a very individualistic society. We like to have our own drink. And so those <laughs> Those punches were shrunk down to individual sizes, and we all got our own, and that was the cocktail. The cocktail was first defined in the newspaper in 1806, so you have to imagine it had been around a couple decades before that. So uh, when you thought that it felt like an old-fashioned thing, it really is an old-fashioned thing. It's kind of always been with us. You mentioned something that I also feel like in my naivety of knowing about cocktails from childhood was that it's quite American, actually, not always the ingredients, but the concept. Is that correct? That it, it is in many ways an American invention, even though you'll find cocktails in Europe or, or is that a misperception? No, it is most definitely an American invention. And when people ask me why I spend all my time uh, studying cocktails and writing about cocktails as if that is not really a, a worthwhile, you know, endeavor, I, I let them know, you know, that it's one of the few things that we can lay claim to 100%, you know, along with jazz and the American musical, it's a thoroughly American invention. And I think uh, we should be proud of it. Well, and I think people don't realize that because cocktails have this association with like sophistication or, you know, maybe it goes back to the Algonquin round table or things like that, these literary circles or things. It has this European connotation. So I think there's an assumption that we borrowed it for Europe rather than I think we exported it. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. And I, I, I know why it has that reputation of being sophisticated and elegant It's because uh in the early days, in the 19th century, cocktails were mainly drunk uh, by the upper class. Uh, you, these were expensive drinks, and you had to be able to afford them. Um, the working classes would drink uh, hard cider or beer or you know rum, stuff like that. But once you uh, got to the point where you were mixing different elixirs together into special potions, that meant you were entering a, a respectable bar you know, with a very talented mixologist. So you were probably um, a man of means. And they were all men because women were not allowed into bars um, until after Prohibition. And uh, so the Martini, for instance, the most famous cocktail in the world, has always had a reputation as an elite cocktail. And when when was it that, that was it, I'm assuming it's something to do with the growing middle class in America that the cocktail it got democratized? Or do you think that's even more recent? It started to get democratized in the late 19th century and early, uh, late 19th and early 20th century. Um, before that, cocktails pretty much stayed in the bar room, but they started to be adapted into the home. Um, and you would have cocktail parties. And in that case, it was the woman of the house who was in charge. Um, women had to know the, the popular cocktails, the cocktails that their guests would like and how to mix them up properly when they were entertaining people in the home. But it was really prohibition that changed everything. With prohibition, uh, women were finally invited into bars. In that case, they were illegal speakeasies. And mm -hmm. women and men drank side by side. So once, once prohibition was over and repeal came, uh, the women were not going to give up that newly found right. And they were uh, newly welcome and newly comfortable in the bars. So when that happened, you know, all bets were off and uh, drinking came home. Uh, people bought cocktail sets. Everyone knew how to mix a good drink. They, they took pride in it. 
and and it became uh, a middle class pursuit. It became a pursuit for anybody, really. Mm. And did World War Two upend that in terms of at least the domestic sphere? I feel like I read there learned that it actually expanded it afterward because of the kind of mixing of Americans and French in, in France during the war. Well, I think that happened during World War I as well. Um, they discovered certain drinking habits and certain uh, spirits and they brought them home. Um, probably happened that way as well in World War II. I know, for instance, the screwdriver was a drink that was drunk by soldiers uh, during World War II. They were looking for something simple to drink and they brought that back to the bars afterwards. Uh, what kind of happened after Prohibition is drinking became simpler. Uh, prior to Prohibition, cocktail creations were pretty ornate. Um, there were a lot of things in them. They had fancy garnishes. There was a lot of showmanship. After that, you know, a lot of, a lot of the bartenders had left the industry and uh, a lot of skills had been forgotten. So mm. the drinks that were popular after Prohibition were simpler drinks. Um, martini, Manhattan, old-fashioned, daiquiri, things with three ingredients, four ingredients, something you could make at home. And that kind of continued you know, like into the 60s and 70s where you get popular drinks like the rusty nail or the harvey Wallbanger, which are incredibly simplistic um it just uh, i think people just wanted uh their alcohol in a kind of a straightforward fashion so is all this a societal connection to the history of drinks is that what drew you to it as a subject to really focus on as a writer or what what was the uh moment when you really saw like, <laughs> this is my calling, I'm going to focus on this area of, of uh, beverages. Yeah, there was a special moment in 2006. I was still writing about theater. And I was occasionally writing about other things. I had been sent down to Soho in New York to cover this pop-up uh, espresso bar, an Ely espresso bar. And the publicist who ran it also ran a cocktail convention in New Orleans called Tales of the Cocktail. It was only mm. about three years old and had been pretty devastated by Hurricane Katrina. And she was mm. just trying to make sure it didn't die. Um, so she invited me down. I had never been to New Orleans and I always liked cocktails, so I accepted. So when I went down there, I found this whole new world of people who were very serious and very passionate and very talented, all about the subject of cocktails. Now, I had always been interested in cocktails. My, my, my mother and father drank cocktails religiously uh, every day at five o'clock. My father drank old fashions. Uh, no, I'm sorry. I got that wrong. My mother drank old fashions and my father drank martinis. Mm. And I always remember in the back of my head, I was interested in that. I was interested in the idea of a cocktail and what was the history and where did they come from and how do you make them? But I had never really pursued it. And so with this, seeing that there was this new Kanto revolution going on, I saw an opportunity to pursue that interest in my profession, you know, because it was a new beat and relatively nobody was following that beat. So I could go back to my editors and say, you need someone to write about cocktails? People are drinking cocktails again. And they said, yes. That's that. Yeah, that's neat. I think there there is there's just something about that. If you're, a, you know, back to what you're what I said before, if like you're a kid watching adults drink cocktails, there's just something alluring about how that appears. And some of it is the ritual, right, of like the fact that you you stop your day, you have this special thing. And of course, I, I, maybe it's as a kid too, but like usually it's in a kind of fancy glass that certainly kids are not allowed. So there's that mm -hmm. kind of like allure of, it's a moment for something special. Yes. Yes. I mean, it, it, your adult, your uh, adult parents are doing it. So you're, you're fascinated and you want to know, know what it's all about. And it did seem special, a uh, particularly adult activity. And especially when they had people over my parents entertained quite a lot, you know, and everyone had their special drink. And there were also holiday drinks, you know, that came around in the Midwest. There was this uh, punch called a Tom and Jerry. It's kind of like a hot eggnog. And every Christmas, everybody would get a cup full of Tom and Jerry. So all these little seeds were planted in my brain early on. As a fellow Midwesterner, I will say that must be an upper Midwest thing because I'd never heard of it before. Yeah, it was almost forgotten that Tom and Jerry was really popular all through the 19th century. Uh, it was like it would be served like from Thanksgiving to January and you could find it in bars. But then it disappeared. Um, it was a rather elaborate drink and, and it had its own kind of punch bowl set. 
But in the upper Midwest, where it continues to be cold for, and winters last a long time, uh, the Tom and Jerry, uh, it hung on. What's in it? Uh, so it's like a batter, you know, with uh, with milk and, and eggs. And then there's like, it. De- uh, the spirits depend on the recipe, but usually um, there's rum. There's brandy. Sometimes there's bourbon, and then there are, there's bitters sometimes, and spices. You know, like allspice and nutmeg. And so, you know, you've had a glass of eggnog. I'm yeah, sure. I was going to say it sounds very similar to eggnog. So, what's what is it stronger than eggnog, or what? How does it? Dis- no, it's the same. The difference is the temperature. Uh, you heat up the milk, and um, so you like pour in some milk. You pour in some batter, and then you pour in some milk, and you sprinkle some nutmeg on top i prefer it to eggnog because eggnog is cold it just kind of sits on your stomach there mm. and is, is very heavy feeling whereas you know as a hot drink you know it, it's a little lighter so it's like if eggnog and a hot toddy had a baby it would be tom and jerry exactly <laughs> um <laughs> Exactly. And, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm glad to say that that's one of the success stories of the modern cocktail revival. They have, well, some bars, they have brought the Tom and Jerry back from uh, the dustbin of history and people drink it again. I serve it every year at my annual Christmas party. And, and is it re- revelation to Brooklynites or what? Um, in, the, in the crowd, in the circles that I travel in, they know what a Tom and Jerry is, but they don't get to have it it's a lot of work putting it together so when they come to the party they're always like happy to have the opportunity to uh to uh imbibe uh tom and jerry at least once during the holiday season well and i feel like eggnog is like fruitcake most people have only had a bad one because it's you know made or because it's such a faff to make it and put it together people tend to have something that's pre-mixed or you know it's also yes I, I think that's kind of the story for a lot of cocktails that people have bad used to have bad associations because they only had a bad one. They had a bad martini or they had a bad tequila drink or bad old fashioned, and they didn't think these drinks were any good. They just needed bartenders who had the skills to make them correctly. No, and I think that's a very under discussed subject. Or I'm trying to think of the parallel, but it's this thing where people don't realize that I don't know. I don't know what percent you would say, but at least five out of 10 at a minimum in a bar, if you order drink, chances are it's not mixed correctly or proportionally, particularly if it's not a particularly experienced bartender or it's really, really busy and they just can't focus. What what percentage would you put on it? You mean the percentage of like badly made drinks? Yeah, especially if you're not at a high-end specialty cocktail bar. Uh, yeah, it's probably about 75%, I'd say. And that's, you know, that's gone down because of the efforts of, you know, the cocktail revival. I'd like some easy examples. Uh, most places you ask for, you know, a gin martini. They're not even going to put any vermouth in it. They're just going to give you a cold glass of gin because they think that that's what you want. Um, often when you order Manhattans, they forget to put the Angostura bitters in. And really a, a Manhattan, the vermouth and the whiskey do not come together if you don't have the bitters in there. Um, what else? And do you say to people, you know, I mean, certainly people send food back that isn't cooked properly. Um, you know, again, I think it always depends if the bar is insanely busy and it take, took you 20 minutes to get the drink in the first place. But like, do you send drinks back when you can tell they're really not mixed right? Uh, no, I tend to go to bars, you know, where I know they're going to mix them right. So I don't have to send them back. Um, I, I think, I think most Americans feel kind of sheepish about that. Mm. Uh, sending food back, sending drinks back. You got you got to have a lot of guts to do that. Um, I think I've only sent a drink back once, and it was a martini. And that's just because it had become warm. It had been sitting at the service station for like 10 minutes, and it was no a martini that's warm is not drinkable. So I sent that back. But that took a lot of nerve, and that was the only time. I also don't think a lot of Americans feel confident enough in what the drink should be that they they know it should be sent back. So would your advice be different, which is more order cocktails in places that that either have a good reputation for being a good cocktail place or just seem like they have an experienced bartender? Yes. Um, always, uh, I always tell people when you enter a bar, just read the room. I mean, if it seems like a place where they're taking cocktails seriously and they have a cocktail menu and a good back bar, 
then you can feel confident ordering a cocktail. But some places, you know, you should just order beer or a glass of wine or gin and tonic, you know, because not not every bar knows how to make cocktails well and and nor nor should they. There are all kinds of bars out there. So I thought we'd dive into um, what you've been writing about most recently. And I wanted to ask you before we talk about the specifics of the book, what is it that, that to you or how do you define the d- distinction between a modern cocktail and a classic one? So a classic cocktail are the drinks that we all know, which were mainly created in the late 19th century and early 20th. So that's the Martini, Manhattan, Rob Roy, Old Fashioned, Daiquiri, all those kind of things. So they've been around for 100 years or more. Um, when I'm saying modern classic cocktails, I mean drinks that have been created or invented uh, in the last 25 years, which is the time period, like the, the cocktail revival began in the late 90s and around the year 2000. So drinks that have been created recently that have shown some staying power and are sticking around because they are popular with people and bartenders. What would be, what's an example, the one that's popping to my head is like the espresso martini. Is that yes, one yes, that that's have? in the book, an uh, undeniable modern classic. It's kind of stretching the definition a little bit because the espresso martini was actually created way back in the mid 80s. But it took about 10 or 15 years before it became uh, popular in a widespread way. And of course, today it's even more popular than ever. Uh, it's quite amazing. Um, yeah, it's you go to any bar, any hotel bar, restaurant bar, it's on the menu because it has to be on the menu. Do you think that's an intersection with the explosion in coffee drinking, particularly more um, sophisticated coffee drinking? So they're just kind of the two things like people just have this kind of connection between having a coffee and having a drink? Yeah, I think it has something to do with that. Also, the explosion in quality coffee liqueurs. It used to be there were only a couple to choose from, like Kahlua and Tia Maria, but now there are better quality coffee liqueurs. And uh, there's also a lot of cold brew concentrate. I mean, not every restaurant or bar has a espresso machine. The original um, espresso martini was made with fresh hot espresso, but uh, they found various um, workarounds of that so they can serve an espresso martini without having fresh espresso. And do we know where the espresso martini was invented? Yes, it was invented in London by a man named Dick Bradsell. Dick Bradsell was considered the godfather of the London cocktail revival, very influential figure. He created it at a place called the Soho Brasserie, uh, which doesn't exist anymore in 1985. And it just kind of sat there for a while. But then he was hired by a man named Jonathan Downey, who opened a very popular bar called Match in the late 90s. And he put it on the permanent menu. And after that, it became very popular uh, and leaped to other bars. And that's one of the criteria I have in the book. Um, in order for you to be a modern classic cocktail, it it has to move from the bar where it was invented to other bars. Otherwise, it's not going to catch on. All right. We are going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to dive into more of those Thoughts and Drinks with Robert Simonson talking about his new book, Modern Classic Cocktails. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. 
Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome back. We're talking to Robert Simonson about his new book, Modern Classic Cocktails, 60 Plus Stories and Recipes from the New Golden Age in Drinks. So before we talk about some drinks specifically, I wanted to talk to you about the, this moniker that you've given and you, you mentioned in the first part of the show about sort of this thing that started about 25 years ago. How did a new golden age in drinks actually come about? What, what facilitated it or, or revived it? Well, it started out with some individual efforts, uh, some kind of like um, lone people out in the wilderness uh, trying to bring back the cocktail. Um, if we're looking at like um, the, the, say the end of the um, 1980s, the cocktail was not in a very good place. Um, it was not being drunk by young people. It was mainly associated with the older generations. Mm. Uh, whatever cocktails there, there, there were, they were being made in clubs and in discotheques. And, you know, we call these disco drinks. And they're usually brightly colored and with a lot of liqueurs, very sweet, very potent, but not very sophisticated. And uh, the, the art had been lost. But then there were some people like a bartender named Dale DeGroff, who was put in charge of the Rainbow Room in New York city in 1987 and his boss, Joe Baum famous restaurateur, said, I want a classic cocktail bar and uh, you have to go and do your research and bring back these old cocktails and do them right. So Dale did his research reading all the old out of date cocktail manuals. He brought them back and the press uh, paid attention and so did the patrons. And they were very excited to, you know, see these drinks again that had not been made well in decades. Over in London, there was a guy named Dick Bradsell who basically did the same thing. So uh, you had these mentor figures, and then there were a few people that followed in their footsteps. And then there was a very important uh, bar called Milk and Honey, which opened in 2000 in New York, which sort of created the uh, modern speakeasy aesthetic, you know, mm. where, where cocktails, in most bars, cocktails were not front and center. They were not showcased. It was mm. like, you know, they made a few. It was a sideline. But here, they were serious about cocktails. They were celebrating cocktails. They were celebrating bartending, which hadn't been done hadn't been done in like 50, 60 years. Bartending mm -hmm. had always been thought of as a stopgap profession, not as something that you dedicated yourself for. Mm -hmm. to. And there were other things that were happening. Um, a lot of the old books uh, were reprinted. Uh, the internet came along. And with the internet, there, there were food and drink chat rooms. And so... Uh, cocktail people who were serious about this could exchange information very quickly. Um, the bartenders started asking for certain spirits and liqueurs that had gone away to be brought back. Uh, rye is a big example. Nobody was drinking rye whiskey, but a lot of the old cocktails required rye. So the bartenders said, you know, we want rye. And, you know, when bartenders speak loudly enough, uh, the distillers and the distributors pay attention. So that happened. Yeah, no, I love all those connections. And thinking, could we just go back to the Rainbow Room for a second for yes. uh, maybe younger listeners who might not be f familiar? And unfortunately, the Rainbow Room is no more thanks to terrorism. But um, I, I think that's interesting because I'm wondering about the connection between the Rainbow Room being a unique place that was at the height of fashion, but also a crossroads where tourists and locals would, you know, it was a place that both, at least to me, would still go. Do you want to just kind of give the background on the rainbow room and its kind of significance in food and wine history. Yes. Um, it was, it had been this art deco palace, this kind of, you know, what they used to call a club. And it was at the top of Rockefeller center. And it had been kind of laying moribund for a while when Joe Baum decided to uh, renovate it and revive it. And he wanted to bring it back the glamour. I mean, it used to be one of the most glamorous places, you know, anywhere. And even in New York, it, uh, New Yorkers thought it was glamorous. So he brought it back, and part of his vision were the cocktails. It felt like a kind of place that should have, should be serving uh, wonderful uh, martinis in Manhattans and old fashions, but not just that, but drinks that everyone had forgotten about, you know, or or never heard of, like Sazerac and the Ramos Gin Fizz and a Gin Fizz and Daisies and all this stuff. And Dale DeGroff did all of that. Um, you did get tourists there. You got locals there if they could afford it. It was an expensive place. Mm -hmm. um, I, I've been living in uh, 
New York since 1988. And I sadly never went to the Rainbow Room simply because I just did not have the money to do so. But enough people went there to see what was going on and want to do it in other places. And and what closed the Rainbow Room? Uh, I don't know off the top of my head. I think it just, uh, the Rainbow Room seems to have had a roller coaster career. It's like it was trendy, it was hot, and then it becomes old fashioned. And I I don't know the specific cause as to why it closed, but it remains closed. It's just open for private events. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting in your book, one thing I noticed is you're covering a wide swath, but I would say, I don't know what the percentage is, but one out of two, one out of three recipes tends to have a history um, in New York or London. And I was just curious, since they seem to feature heavily, is that because little innovation was happening elsewhere? Or what was it that made London and New York kind of the, the these epicenters for the development of modern cocktails? Yeah, you're right. Uh, the main... Uh at the cocktail revival at the beginning took place mainly in three cities, San Francisco, New York, and London. And that's uh, where all the innovations were happening. And it may seem kind of lopsided that way that so many modern classics came out of those cities, but you have to remember these are, are huge uh, metropolises. And, and, and that's where all the media is. And so you have a better chance if you have come up with a good cocktail that is modern and new of getting it noticed in San Francisco, New York, and London, because, you know, the, the reporters and the editors and the publishers, they're all there. Uh, so that's one of the reasons, but I do believe that also there is uh, just as in any other field, uh, there's just an excess of creativity in these uh, cities. Uh, they're, they're centers where creative people are drawn to. So they might have actually all been invented by people who were from elsewhere, but ended up in New York or London. Or... Yes, yes. Many of the people were from elsewhere. And also there are more opportunities. You know, you come to New York and if you're interested in creating great cocktails, there are going to be more bars, more restaurant bars, more hotel bars where you can take those chances. I'm also struck by there are three cities that have uh, particularly well, in New York and San Francisco case, pretty well-developed public transport, so not as many people drive? Or do you think that 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 might have been some factor, but that ultimately the craze for cocktails or these popular cocktails, that the, these new modern classics, they did spread to all across the country? Uh, yes. I mean, that's a very good point. Yeah, you don't have to drive. And so uh, you can go out and experience these cocktails and, you know, feel all right about getting home, you know, take the subway, take the bus or to get a taxi. Um, but after those three uh, cities got established, I mean, cocktails did travel to like all the other cities, all the other, you know, capitals in England and in the United States, as well as throughout Europe. Um, so, and it spread very quickly. Like I said, um, in the 19th century, you know, if you created a great cocktail, it would have taken a while for it to spread across the country. You have to, you're very dependent on newspaper people coming in and saying, everybody's drinking the Manhattan, you know, and, and then somebody reading that column on the other side of the country would say, oh, I'm going to make Manhattan at my bar. But with the internet, these, uh, these transfers of information could just happen in days. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's dive into some of the cocktail recipes that you highlighted. And I thought um, it'd be fun. We haven't done a lightning round in a while to to put you through one. So here we go. Uh, your answer can be as short or long as you want to. You don't have to keep it <laughs> to one word I'm ready. or one, one drink. All right. So which modern drink would you say is already a classic? We talked about some already, but curious of your, if you can nail one. Now, of all the drinks in the book, I'd say they're all modern classics, but the ones that are undeniably so, because your man on the street will recognize them, espresso martini, Tommy's margarita, penicillin, paper plane, and Awaka Old Fashioned. Wow. Okay. So those are already... And see, actually, I've had almost none of those. Ah, you've got some work to do. So some of them are twists. Like the martini is not actually new. The espresso, you know, there are twists on old drinks or existing drinks, right? But... Penicillin paper plane, are they totally new inventions? The penicillin and the paper plane were, uh, if you can believe it, invented by the same man, Sam Ross. 
had a bar called Milk and Honey that I mentioned earlier. The penicillin is sort of like a scotch sour. It's got like a float of smoky scotch on top. And the paper plane is an equal parts uh, drink. It's another sour uh, with made with bourbon. And uh, I just know that these are modern classics because everywhere I go, they're just on menus. They're even on menus. Like I was recently at the uh, new Moynihan Station here in New York City, mm-hmm. and they have a bar there. and. Uh, and the penicillin is on the menu. I couldn't believe it. So it's like a train station bar has the penicillin. So you know it's a modern classic. So I guess that's a good test, too, if you're going into a place to think about, does the bartender know what they're doing? Do they have the back bar set up? Is <laughs> If they have penicillin or paper plane on the menu, it likely is up to speed on cocktails. Yes, yes, that the bar program was put together by somebody who knows what's going on. Let's switch to Revival. Is there a classic cocktail that's sort of become modern again? I would argue that the Negroni falls in that category. The Mm. Negroni is 100 years old, but it Mm. was largely forgotten for most of the 20th century. But now it's back with a vengeance to the point where you can get a Negroni in any bar and it'll be made pretty well. And not only that, probably most bars have a Negroni variation on the menu. Mm. Yeah. Okay. That resonates with me because I definitely noticed the Negroni uh, comeback. I find them a little strong, but um, it is a strong. It's one hundred percent booze. Yeah. No. And I think that's like I think a lot of people who don't totally recognize that because it, it it looks more innocent than 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 it packs a a punch as just a sort of everyday let's have a drink sort of drink. Yes. Um, what about? of new cocktails that been a sensation that you think are sort of more hype and uh, will likely just disappear within a year or two. Yeah. I thought about this one and I couldn't really figure it out, but I'm going to say something that may be controversial. Uh, It won't be forgotten, but it may go away in terms of popularity is the Negroni Spagliato, which is enormously popular right now, simply because of a TikTok video. You Mm. probably, you probably have read about this phenomenon. Um, it's that new Game of Thrones show. Like two of the stars were talking about what they like to drink. One of them said the Negroni Spagliato. Now, to a cocktail historian like myself, I, I, I know this drink very well, which is, um, you know, it's sweet vermouth and Campari. And instead of the gin, you have Prosecco. So it's a sparkling mm. cocktail. Mm. It was invented in Milan, you know, 50 or 60 years ago. But it became apparent because of the TikTok video that most people had never heard of this drink. I never heard of it. So now it's everywhere. Everyone's ordering Negroni Spagliatos. There's even a canned Negroni Spagliatos that's going to be coming out soon. But I do believe, as is the nature of TikTok and social media, that a year from now, people will have moved on. So you're saying the TikTok video is about a mention of this drink yeah. in, are you talking about House of the Dragon, the sequel to? Yes, King that's what I'm talking about. But doesn't House of the Dragon take place like way before the group? Yeah, no, before. no, they're not in character. It's two actresses talking oh. to each other and they're having oh. a little conversation. And one says, what's your favorite cocktail? And they unexpectedly say a Negroni Spagliato with Prosecco. And and uh, the other actress is impressed. And I think this made everyone like scurry to their computer and look up Negroni Spagliato because they'd never heard of it. And they wanted to, you know, drink like these actors. It sound, I might be wrong, but it sounds like it actually is slightly less strong alcoholic-wise than a, yes. a proper Negroni. It would be. Yeah, because your average gin is going to be about 40, 46% alcohol, and Prosecco will be less than half that. Yeah, so it's a little little bit lighter, although it it doesn't sound like a name that has staying power. I wouldn't even know how to spell it. Uh, it's Italian for mistaken. Uh, the whole idea is it was invented by mistake. A bartender was making a Negroni, but he reached for the wrong bottle, and he didn't get the gin. He got the Prosecco. And I mean, it's one of those stories that's a little hard to believe, but that's the story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like Peach Melba or whatever. Yeah, yeah, they're all, if the story is too fanciful, it's probably not true. But still fun. Yeah, fun. So on the flip side of that, what is the wildest drink that you thought, this is ridiculous, but seems to have staying power that might be with us for a long time? That would be the porn star martini. 
I would have never predicted 20 years ago that this drink would still be with us. It was invented by in London by a guy named Douglas Ankra, and it it's not a martini at all. It's 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 a sour with like passion fruit liqueur and and vodka and there's vanilla in there. But the thing that makes it interesting is it's served with a little glass of Prosecco on the side or champagne. So it's like a chaser. Mm. So it's a very sweet drink with this kind of dry, uh, effervescent chaser. But for some reason, that drink is still incredibly popular in England and is ordered all the time. I've seen polls that say it's the number one ordered drink. Which is interesting, too, because like the comp, it, you have to be sitting down, right? Well, I not have to be. But obviously, once you have to have kind of two drinks at once, it becomes harder to just hold at a cocktail party and if you're standing. Yeah, I've never seen it at a cocktail party or anyone's home, but I, I see it in a lot of bars. Not necessarily uh, American bars, but some. Is it called a martini also because it's served in a martini glass? Like, I think Cosmos are, too. And they're not. Yeah, it's kind of there was uh, this era in the 90s. We call it the teeny era, apostrophe mm. T-I-N-I, in which any drink that was served in a martini glass was called a martini. And I think it's kind of a holdover from that. Yeah. Am I right that a Cosmo is meant to be served? Or is, it, is that wrong? Is it served in a coupe? Uh, it can be in a, a coupe or a martini glass. Sometimes it is often categorized as a martini variation, though it is a sour, meaning it has you know juice in it. So I don't know why it gets lumped in that way. I don't think of it as martini, but some people do. Well, and I was curious. Also, I just assumed a Cosmo was like a super old drink that either came back, but I, I think I learned from your book that it, it, it's not really that old. It, it maybe came back as part of this modern age of cocktails, but what's the history of the Cosmo? Uh, it was invented in 1988 at the Odeon, famous restaurant in New York by a guy named Toby Cicchini. There are various competing stories, but I believe uh, Toby's story is the accurate one. What he did as he was faced with this drink that he'd been told about called the Cosmopolitan, which was popular in San Francisco, he didn't think the drink was very good. So he started tinkering with it and made a different version of it. And it was his version that caught on um, and, of course, became world famous because it was featured in Sex and the City. And did that sort of drag it into the revival, the cocktail revival, because that was sort of the same time period? Yes, the same time period. And also it was kind of funny because the the mixologists of the cocktail revival, they hated making Cosmos because it was so popular. It was such a cocktail of the masses, you know, and they were trying to bring back these uh, obscure um, Epicurean cocktails. And so they would often like refuse to make it. But um, I think of it as a connective cocktail. It was like one of those rare cocktails in the late 20th century that that achieved wide popularity and wide fame at a time when people had forgotten about cocktails. So it it, it should be given some due for helping raise awareness and returning yes. people to, you know. Yes, and that's that's why I included it in the book. I felt it was important that way. Historically. Yes. And drink, I was just wondering, having done a drinks party recently where I was mixing drinks, I, and I gave a menu, so I was like, you can have one of these seven. But it is really time-consuming. You can't really participate in a party if you're mixing cocktails. Um, can can you make like a pitcher of Cosmos and serve it, or is something lost in that whole thing that making these kind of drinks in bulk or not to order doesn't really work? Well, a Cosmo is a shaken drink. You shake drinks that have citrus or egg or dairy in them because those things are harder to integrate um, with something like a Negroni. That's all alcohol, and all you have to do is stir it. So if you want to make a pitcher of cocktails for a party, I would recommend a stirred cocktail, like a Manhattan Martini or a Negroni. Um, with a Cosmo, the, the components would start to separate after a while. Uh, so it's like the emulsification that is done by the cold and the shaking, which is it, 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 in essence temporary, yes. long enough to drink it. But if you did it, I see. yeah, with sours, you know, you want to shake it and then drink it immediately because that kind of that spark, it disappears. It just kind of evaporates. Um, there was uh, this uh, cocktail book called the Savoy Cocktail Book published in 1930. And at the beginning, there was a little epigram and said, you know, drink cocktails while they are still laughing at you. 
And do you have any recommendation? We're coming up to the holiday season. And do you think, do cocktails go with Thanksgiving dinner? Have you ever, like, would you I would say uh, no. I drink wine with Thanksgiving dinner, but a cocktail before Thanksgiving dinner is a nice idea. Um, I usually recommend a Boulevardier. Um, this isn't entirely my idea. There's a food writer named Helen Rosner, and she wrote a column for The New Yorker, I believe, some years ago, where she thought the Boulevardier was the perfect Thanksgiving cocktail. Now, that's a, that's a Negroni with whiskey. Ah, okay. So it's got all these kind of components. It's got, you know, the strong, it's got the bitter, it's got the sweet, it's the right color, it's this beautiful kind of amber color. But I wholeheartedly agree with her that it kind of it kind of checks all the boxes. All right. Well, we'll thank Helen for that inspiration. Yeah. All right. We're going to take a break and we'll be back to hear Robert's Julia moment. Let us know what you think of today's show. Send us an email or voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org. Or better yet, you can tweet us at juliachildjcf. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. No, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she's inspired them in their career. Robert, what's your Julia moment? I have only one. I, I'm a kind of a cocktail guy. I think about cocktails, write about cocktails. You actually mentioned it at the top of the show, uh, Julia Child's Upside Down Martini. Mm. Um, I remember when I found out about that, I was so surprised and, and shocked. Um, the martini is a battle that's been fought, you know, in the modern cocktail ri- revival for years. Because um, during the post-World War II years, martinis were very, very dry. Um, there was very little vermouth, and there were all kinds of like ways that people tried to avoid vermouth in their martini. And so Julia Child was actually going quite against the grain, the grain of the entire world, by drinking a martini that had more vermouth than uh, gin in it. Um, and it kind of meshed perfectly with the cocktail revival because there was this fight to bring vermouth back to the martini, and one of the most popular martini variations of the last 20 years has been the 50-50 martini, which is half vermouth and half gin. Um, so she's actually even more extreme. I, I, it's supposed to be like five to one, right? With five, Yeah, it, it's, it's almost like vermouth with a splash of gin. And of course, at that time, I think, was pre even the idea of a vodka martini. Or does a va- vodka martini go back? Uh, I mean, traditionally, it's gin, right? Yeah. Did she do vodka? No, no, no. I'm saying she would, but I think vodka is so replaced things or mm-hmm. it, it, that people, some people may not be aware that actually that's not traditional, that it is gin. It is gin. Uh, vodka started to become popular in the 50s and 60s uh, with businessmen and it was promoted by ad execs. Uh, and it's still a uh, vodka martini is very popular today. So in a way, uh, you have to view Julia Child as very prescient in, term, in terms of martinis. She saw, maybe she saw what was coming because number one, she was still drinking them with gin. And number two, she was drinking them with a lot of vermouth. So she was she she was just drinking what she liked. And and the person to give credit to was Paul, because Ah. I suspect because Paul, like I said, one of his recipes I I could see on the handwritten recipe card is dated 1948. So that's really, you know, well before Julia was into culinary school or anything like that. And this was, I think, Paul's passion, and I'm pretty sure he invented this idea, and it must have been some taste he had formed about, I don't know this for sure at all, but that I'm guessing he must have just liked vermouth, or particularly it being French, it kind of fit their 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 taste and discovery in France, I suspect. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and as far as I understand it, they used Noli Pratt, is that right? That was their brand, yes. We've had, at the foundation, we get lots of questions about Noli Pratt. Yes, and do you know what kind of gin they used? That I don't, not off the top of my head. I, I've never read um, that. Um, 
I'd ha- let me go back and if I can find it, I'll put it in the show notes of whether they, in Paul's recipe for a reverse martini, he specified the type of gin. I don't think so, but I'll check. And if people out there want to make a Julia Child uh, upside down martini, I would, I would um, add this addendum is that there's a big difference between the Noli Pratt vermouth you get in France and the Noli Pratt you get here in the U.S. And if they can lay their hands on the stuff from France, they're going to have a much more flavorful cocktail. And is that because what the basic, because I think the other thing people lose track of is, which I had to look up to, what vermouth is. It's essentially a kind of style of wine, no? Yeah, aromatized wine with lots of botanicals in it. Uh, the kind that Noli Pratt sends to us has much less flavor. It's a milder, not as strong, not as colored, um, because they they know that most Americans don't really like vermouth that much, and they're not going to put that much in their martinis. So they don't want a vermouth that asserts itself. But I, whenever I can find the European version, the original French version, Noli Pratt, I buy it because it makes an excellent martini, in my opinion. So there's dry martini and sweet martini. And then when you move to Noe Pratt, they have two styles, but do they follow dry and sweet or, or cause aren't there two? Noe yeah. Pratt yeah. Yeah. Type? Dry, dry vermouth and sweet vermouth. Uh, Noli Pratt is most famous uh, for the dry vermouth. Broadly speaking, France is known for dry vermouth and Italy for sweet vermouth. Uh, but Noli Pratt does make a sweet vermouth. Um, I've tried it a few times. I, it was supposedly invented specifically to go in Manhattans. Uh, but I have made Manhattans with it, and I don't think it's the best Manhattan vermouth. But I do love the dry stuff. You have it here. Thank you for for giving us uh, more to talk about with the reverse martini. <laughs> well, the martini is an endless subject. We'll be talking about it forever. I think that's a perfect way to... Uh, End the show. And thanks very much for joining us, Robert. Oh, this has been a pleasure. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you want to keep up with Robert, it's at Robert O. Simonson on Instagram and Twitter. The new book is Modern Classic Cocktails, 60-plus stories and recipes from the new golden age in drinks by Robert Simonson with photographs by Lizzie Monroe. It's out now from 10 Speed Press. Ask or search for it at your favorite bookseller. For all the latest from the foundation, it's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF and I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. Make sure you're also following at SB Culinary Experience for all the latest in and around Santa Barbara. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at GBH. Thanks to my co-producer of the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Armin's Benjamin. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Inside Julia's Kitchen is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.